another episode of Not So Trivial Pursuits, a podcast where we discuss comics, films, TV series, literature, and everything in between. I am Dan Fleek. And I am Jesse Cassid. Uh, today we will be discussing Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. This is the first episode in our intended Neil Gaiman series. We believe Neverwhere is a perfect introduction to Neil's fiction. But if you think we should have started with Sandman, we apologize because... We feel that Sandman is far too dense and rich for us to cover right now, especially for an intro, for even for us, into Neil's works. Much like a large, delicious chocolate cake. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're also using Neverwhere to begin our discussion of literature, and we're going to use this book to teach you all a little bit about story elements and story structure. Now, without further ado, let's begin with a brief biography of Neil Gaiman. Let's do it. Neil Gaiman was born in Hampshire, United Kingdom, but he now lives in the United States near Minneapolis. According to his website bio, he is a self-described feral child who was raised in libraries. Clearly, he has an affinity for books and libraries, which is always a good quality in an author. Quite. Neil began his writing career as a journalist. If you're acquainted with any of his work, you may be surprised to learn that his first book was a biography of the band Duran Duran. Uh, it's, <laughs> he's definitely straight away from that, but hey man, what can you say? They were a really popular band at the time. Uh, his second book was titled Don't Panic, The Official Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion, and it featured material about the beloved author of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, Douglas Adams, and the universe that Douglas Adams created. Gaiman was still looking for his own voice at the time of his second book, but it wouldn't be long before he found it. Gaiman's incredibly popular Sandman series began its initial 75-issue run in January 1989 and continued until March 1996. That's a lot. You can see why we're leaving that off for right now. (laughs) A lot of content right there. Sandman is a multiple award-winning comic series that changed the comics industry forever, and it is also how Neil Gaiman made his name. At almost the same time Sandman debuted, Gaiman is also trying his hand at long fiction, co-authoring Good Omens with Terry Pratchett, which is being... Uh, it's coming to be an Amazon Prime series pretty soon here. Yeah, I saw that. And that's super popular as well amongst <clears throat> fans. Books been popular for a long time. And however, it was not until the publication of his first solo novel, being of course Neverwhere, in 1997, that he cemented his status as a novel writer. Wow. Now, many people like to term Neil Gaiman's fiction as a type of fantasy or science fiction, but we here at Not So Trivial Pursuits like to think of him as a modern mythologist as we believe he creates myths for the modern world and its people. Yes, we do. Um, Now we're going to go into a short plot summary of Neverwhere, obviously, what we're talking about today. Mm. Um, Neverwhere is the story of Richard Mayhew, a a young young London office worker who is actually from Scotland originally, moves to London, uh, who accidentally slips through the cracks of our world, our current world, which is called London Above, uh, into the one that exists below, London Below, convenient name. This all brought about by an act of kindness by Richard when he helps a girl named Dor, who he finds bleeding on the sidewalk. Richard is drawn into Dor's world as soon as he offers aid and embarks on a quest that will change how he views the world and himself. Indeed, he does. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Where yes. does it go from here? Well, there's a lot of zany characters, fun people. Yes. We are um, also going to be trying to avoid major spoilers. Yeah, here. Over, over overt spoilers. Yeah, so some small stuff here and there, but the big stuff we're definitely going to leave out. Yeah. So, uh, to launch into it here, one thing you see early on, and you wouldn't, if this is your first Neil Gaiman work, you wouldn't really necessarily pick it out until you read more, but in Neverwhere you get an early example of a Neil Gaiman trademark, which is his love of creating a mythos and a certain mythology for his characters to live in. Yes, always good to do. Yeah. 
definitely want to know the world that these characters inhabit to be invested in the story. And one way he likes to do this is he likes to take older, more established things that are going to be familiar to the reader, like in Neverwhere, he's going to take the London of the 1990s, which have been, would have been very familiar to many people at the time. Yes. And he's going to fuse them with his own unique creations to create something entirely new. Incredible. And that's something that he does, has been doing throughout his whole career, kind of this fusion of old stories, old mythology, and his own unique take. Clearly a big fan of mythology himself. Yep. Obviously, with the fact that he did uh, a Norse mythology book, which I would think we will probably discuss, possibly, at some point in the future. Yep. He's the modern mythologist. Modern mythologist. <laughs> exactly what you would uh, call many comic writers, I would think. And yep. that's what he is. Yep. That's where he started. Yeah. His biggest first success. Big one. So now, let's uh, talk about... I guess we can compare the two Londons. Yeah, London above. London above and London, London below. below. Or also, as some of the characters in the book say, the upside and the underside. The underside. And not the upside down. Like not, the, yeah, not the upside down. <laughs> yes. All right. So, London above. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty self-explanatory. It's the regular... It's our world. Regular world. Our world. If you lived in London. Yeah. If you lived in London. Your world if you lived in London. Yeah. Um... We obviously don't, if you can't tell by the lack of London accents. But, yeah, just the regular world up there. No, nothing nothing too strange or incredible up there, uh, which obviously is where Richard is from. And, and he's, he's your ultimate normal guy. Oh, yeah. yeah ultimate, ultimate normal, normal guy. guy. Pretty much just uh, some sort of businessman. Yeah, Not even he really works in an... Specifically said what I honestly don't if it if it does say it's so nondescript because it's supposed to be yeah he's yeah. just like your average office drone. I think that's uh that's the point one of those things where they're really making it like obvious like yeah this is an every man's journey yes yeah. he's a regular guy from from the start he's even kind of like he. Kind of, he kind of gets bossed around by yeah. his fiance. He, he, <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of direction. He doesn't have a lot of ambition. He's kind of down to get his life steered by someone else yeah. for him. He doesn't really... At this point in his life and in the time of the story, in the beginning, he does not really have a direction. He doesn't really care. He's right. just going, going through the motions. Yep. Going through the motions with his uh, fiance... Jessica. Jessica who is described as a beautiful woman who is very clearly... Uh, she's intense. She's intense. <laughs> she's, she's a go-getter. She's a go-getter, for sure. And she's kind of trying to mold Richard into her ideal man, I suppose. Ideal husband. Ideal husband, I yeah. believe that that is... In the book, there is a passage that says that's why she's attracted to him. <laughs> Not because of anything like overt, like insanely good looks or anything, but... He seemed like the perfect person for her to make into whatever she wanted. <laughs> so. Quite an interesting trait to look in for someone. Yeah. But I, I guess she found what she wanted with him. Yeah. Um, yeah, super average guy going on this journey, completely being led around. Thrown by, for a loop. Oh, yeah. Um, possibly the only thing that I would say that really sticks out about his character is not even, I guess, necessarily... His character, but just compared to the London above people, is his empathy. Yeah, uh, his kindness is like yeah. a huge, a huge piece of him. Yeah, like that's that's the. He piece. consistently helps. He consistently helps people. Like he he really helps the homeless and people who right. are downtrodden. He's always down to give them uh, any assistance he can, any kind of money, and that's how he ends up helping Dora, of course, cause just because he doesn't even think about it. It's instinctual for him to help people. Yeah. Not that he necessarily knows what he's doing to he give her medical knows attention. knows he has to do just, something. Just a good guy and just doing something for a stranger. Now, see, that, that would be really his only defining thing that is clear to us at this point in time of yeah, the story. For sure. This is intrinsic kindness. Um, now, I guess we could uh, go into... Who do you want to go to next? Oh, we kind of, we kind of, we said we we're going to talk about the comparisons of London above and London below, but we already started characters, so we yeah, can just do that. Yeah, I kind of just went right into it. Uh, I guess we should get back on track to London below. 
Yeah, uh, we can talk about how they're different than come back to the characters. Yeah, yeah. So one cool thing that he does is if there's a place in London above, which is regular London, of course, uh, like a name of a specific landmark or something famous, like, um, what is it, Knightsbridge? Yeah. There's Knightsbridge, Shepherd's Bush, um, Blackfriars. Blackfriars. <laughs> what he does in the story is every time... They're, they're, it's given a very literal representation in London Below. Yes. As if the people that dwell below, that's just, they've gravitated towards his literal translation. Or maybe they're the reason why it was named that. Who knows? Yeah. He leaves that unclear. It's for us to decide. Maybe it's the secret mythology of London. Yeah. But the Knight's Bridge is like, it's like a very, it's a very dark bridge encompassed by night. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> And Shepherd's Bush is guarded by a gang of very hostile shepherds yep. in London Below. And another one, Blackfriars, is an, a special like monastery-type area yes. that is tenanted by a, a fraternity of monks. friars, of monks, yeah, dressed monks. in black robes. So yep. don't want to reveal them all, but that's just <laughs> to give you an idea. And anything that comes up in the story, any London landmarks and. He gives them their own unique and literal representation. Yes. And the tea, the tea, or not the tea, rather. That's my, that's my, <laughs> that's my Massachusetts shining through. Uh, the two, the London Underground. Yes. Plays a huge part. Very big part. Yeah. Obviously. There's a map in the in the beginning of the book. Yes. There's yeah, a map there's... of London Underground right there. Yep. Which is cool to refer to. Yes. Uh, big part that map. Oh, there's also Earl's Court. Yeah, Earl's Court. A, I think that's a stop. Yeah, I think it's so. A stop in there, and then it's a it's a it's a car mm-hmm. on the tube, and it's the literal court of an earl. Yep, because this place, car. <laughs> this place is uh, basically just every place is a different ruling section. It's like a feudal yeah feudal feudal medieval structure. It's like a a fiefdom, if yeah. you would. They're like, who is the baron of this land? Yeah. That's like a question that they ask. You got lords, and then you got the the underlings that uh, kind of live there on their yeah. land, I suppose. You you tenanted. Yeah. Surf. Um, They've never, they haven't moved past the feudal structure down there. It's still very much that way. Yeah. There also seems to be a... Uh, maybe it's just something in the water down there, but... Some of these people have like uh, powers. Powers, of some sort. yeah. That's another like big difference between London above and London below. There are people down there. Some of them are like some of them appear to be basically normal. Yeah. Some of them appear to be humans that just don't live in the above one. They're humans that live in derelict uh, subway or derelict underground stations, sewers. Even mm-hmm. some of them are like that, but then there's some of them, like he said, uh, they appear to have certain powers. They appear to never age. Yeah, everyone is like really old. Yeah, there. a lot of like the principal characters are very old. Yeah, I don't know if it's something like the, the some of the breeding because sometimes it appears that the more royal ones have the most powers. Yeah, like seemed, Dora's family. Let's, it might we, be something like that. Like we Dora's can talk family. about her now. We can go into their family. We can talk, yeah. That, okay. this, this could be a good time to do that. Yeah, Dora's family is uh, obviously a royal-type family. Like um, one of the highest, it seems like. Yeah, it seems like she's one of the highest. The most, the biggest and most powerful family. seems that her family is also pretty much good people. Yeah, they seem they to be in the best interests of... Whatever. The lesser, yeah. whatever you want to call them. Uh, they're pretty much good people. Everyone in their family is named after a... Um, it's like an, uh, everything, everyone like in the a, family has like the name of like an opening yeah. or a passage. Like her name, obviously, is Her name is Dora. Dor. Her father is Portico. Yep. Um, and then her... Mother, mother is Portia. Portia. <laughs> and then it mentions uh, one sister, Ingress. Yes. And then her brother... Who's named Arch? Arch, and those yeah. are the only ones that are ever named. But they have—they definitely have a theme going. Yeah, a little bit. So, which uh, might connect to something to do with them, possibly. Yeah, we can say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's that that big. They—they they have powers. Yeah, they can um, like create 
doorways, doorways to uh, pretty much anywhere. anywhere. And they can open things that aren't without a key. Like a lock. Yeah. Or like a puzzle box. Yeah, it's pretty. It's an interesting power, which lock is actually box, how she ends up finding Richard. Uh, yeah. She just kind of opens a door. And She's ends on the up, run. She opens the door. She, her family can they can open doors, they can door open doors from anywhere to anywhere. It yes. seems yeah. uh, the power is not infinite though. She makes mention that it takes something out of her. Mm-hmm. She overuses the power. She becomes tired, um, sluggish. She makes remarks how to get it back. She needs to ha- eat something yeah. or rest for a while. It so it's seems not like a, just exercise. So yeah. like you need to re- recover with it's like food a muscle to a degree. Yeah. And it seems like the the farther away she opens a door or like the greater the, it, it takes more out of her. Yeah, it yeah. takes more out it of her. It takes more out of her. Um their house, uh her family's house. Yeah, like their <clears throat> their family home or their area, I guess. And their her full name is uh the lady door of the house of the arch, hmm. so that's her. That's her full, full royal name. royal title. <laughs> so I guess their mansion, house, castle, what have you, would be called the house of the arch. Yeah, uh, it is a different place since mm-hmm. obviously everyone in her family has that power, as the same one as her. Uh, each room is actually a doorway to a different you place. Yeah, yeah, it's like. You walk into it, and like the only only thing you see, I believe, is it's like a big, like entryway. Yeah, and I think there's just like paintings on the walls mm-hmm. of like a room, and they know that when they envision that painting, then they can go there. Yes, basically, it's impenetrable, nearly, if you're <laughs> if you're in her family and have the powers. Yes. Um. Nearly, I guess we could... Um, Nearly. Well, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that her family is dead. I mean, it says it on the back of the yeah. book jacket, so... It's part of the... That's why she's on the run. Yes. Her entire family has been killed, and she's on the run. But you don't know by who or why. Or why. And we will not tell you. Correct. <laughs> You'll have to find out by reading. You have to find it. Yeah, that's not that big of a spoiler. Yeah. Um, anything else with door you think we should add? Um, I think not right now. Okay. Maybe. Or one, one interesting aspect of her character, um, it says that, makes a lot of mention about how they say how he, or not they, Gaiman says how she has, um, he says that it's hard to tell what color eye she has. Oh, yes. Then he makes a lot of mention, uh, to, that she has opal colored eyes. And sometimes, like, I was thinking, I thought to myself, I was like, what what color is an opal? I'm not really sure. And then I looked it up, and there's, an opal is kind of like a, it's a cr- kind of crystalline, and it, re- it kind of reflects whatever uh, color it's okay. around. So, so her I eyes just kind of change to whatever she's around. They kind of like, to, a, to an extent or to a degree, they reflect her mood, her environment, yeah. to a degree. And he uses them as a device like that, like as a as a little device, symbolic device. Yes. <clears throat> uh, she's also mentioned multiple times to be young-looking and have an elfish face. Yeah, like elfin. So I would assume she's not as young as... But definitely loves. youthful. She's definitely youthful. Yeah. I don't think she is an elf, but obviously a quality of... The elf kind is, is <laughs> yes. to be really nerdy in the fantasy aspect is they look young for a long time. Yes. They retain their youth for hundreds of years. So it's un- undefinable. Richard thinks that she's about between 16 and 18, but yeah. he doesn't really know, and it's never discussed. Yeah. Never he defined. Doesn't, doesn't even ask, really. Uh, I think it's just kind of assumed she's not. She just looks that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And their relationship is like, there's death, there's like an innocence to it, I'd say. Richard and Dor? Yeah. Yes. It's, it's fairly innocent. Yeah. It's not it doesn't overtly take, sexual. I don't, yeah. I don't think at all. 
I think he's slightly interested. Yeah. And I think she's also slightly interested as well. I think it's a lot of the, uh, like, maybe not mystery, but just kind of like the difference in their worlds. That kind yeah. Of attracts them slightly. And they go on a quest and they grow together yeah. and they overcome. Together. But there's definitely nothing, like, overt. So don't go looking for that. <laughs> it's not a so that's not, not a romance. It's not type. Of, yeah, it's not that type. Um, I guess we can go into the Marquis. Yes. He's my favorite <laughs> character. I like him a lot. The Marquis is my favorite character, for sure. Yeah, I think he is mine, too. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that there's really anyone else that I like more than him, although... There's other cool characters. I think the character that we are likely going to talk about next is probably one of is one of my favorites. Hunter. <clears throat> yes. After him, I like Hunter. Yeah. We can do the Marquis first, though. So, uh, when you first meet the Marquis, he Richard is told by Dor to go to an, a place to follow the, he she basically gives him these set of complex instructions that like leads him to a back alley in London. <laughs> yeah. And he goes in there and he thinks he's like, Oh, this is a dead end and there's nothing in there but a pile of rags. Yep. But then the pile of rags <laughs> stands up and it's the marquee. And it's cause and that's another thing about it, like the people, the characters, like a lot of the time they have like their clothing is like kind of tattered. Yeah. Or like used to be really nice, but it's not nice anymore because they've been wearing it for a long time. Yep. But the Marquis is defined by his coat. And there's a fun little story at the end of this that uh, Gaiman has included at the end of Neverwhere called How the Marquis Got His Coat Back. And we'll talk about that at the very end. Yeah. But um, when he first sees him, yeah, he thinks he's a pile of rags that stands up. <laughs> and it makes a lot of mention about how the Marquis has the appearance of like a large predatory cat. Yeah. Like a panther or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he has a big, he has a, like a charming, charismatic smile that also seems like it might have the potential to be a little bit the uh, dangerous, dangerous side. That's what I'm looking for. Dangerous, and he has like very cat-like eyes that are roaming. They're always described as white, though. Yeah, I don't think I don't <clears throat> see him as just having like one white sheer eye like yeah, I still I think he has like a pupil and an iris and all that stuff but just I would just say it's probably very light in color yeah it's probably light in color and uh, the fact that you never really get or the other characters never really get probably a direct look yeah his eyes like that and and in the they also mentioned that he has has dark skin yes they never say that he's black but they say that he has dark skin yeah and they made never wear into a comic it's been adapted into a comic and into a TV series, both of which do not look that good, in my opinion, because <laughs> I've looked at stills. And one thing I particularly looked at is the marquee, because I feel like a lot of, for a lot of the other characters, it's they're basically going to look the same. Yeah. Like, they're described very specifically, and in most of the things I've looked up, they kind of have a similar-ish appearance. But the marquee is really someone who is not the same at all throughout in the comic he looks like he's dressed kind of like in the attire of like a french dandy he has like the little loafer shoes and the stockings and the little breeches pants and he has like a nice fancy coat but then his skin or his 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 face not necessarily his whole skin i'm pretty sure he's wearing gloves the entire time but his his face is just like it's just a black like void almost Hmm. And there's just, like, two white eye holes and, like, a very wide, expressive mouth with, like, red lips. Kind of like a Cheshire cat face in some uh, hair. Huh, and he doesn't even have... I don't even think he has a nose in the comic adaptation. And I don't really like that at all. Yeah, it's a little weird. I definitely didn't, like... Even though they describe him sort of cat-like... And they really took it, like, the, super literal. Yeah, I don't get the that. impression that it's literally, like, he looks like a cat. And he has, like... Black face, black hole face with like white, <laughs> nothing eyes. And in the show, he is played by a black actor, and he looks about as I would imagine. But they did something really weird with his hair. He has like a buzz cut in the front, and then like the back is like a dreadlock mane. Hmm. So it's like a weird urban mullet 
That is uh, type thing. <laughs> it's an interesting choice to go with, I guess. I don't like that representation either, just solely because of like the hair primarily, <laughs> but everything else looks pretty pretty spot on. I imagine the marquee is, uh, I guess you'd say, an African-American male. Yeah. Again, of indeterminate age. Yep. Because he seems... Likely old. Likely very old. very old. He seems to have been around for a long time, and they make reference... El- he basically knows everyone. Yes. Uh, he knows he everyone, and he lives his life essentially on a system of favors. Yeah, he is like the embodiment, basically, of this barter system that yes, they have. Yes, this is a really good... London, in London Below, where they don't have a currency. There's no, like, there's no hard, hard currency like money. There's yeah. no coins, there's no paper money. Like if uh, Richard brought down some paper money or a coin or something down there, they would... You would have the same value to them as like a handful of thumbtacks. Yeah. (laughs) Just depends on, they only, they assign value to things as like what they can use it for. Yes. So like you haggle and barter for like material goods. Yeah. So it's like a specific price for everything basically for whoever you're selling to. So you kind of have to know your buyer. And you have to be, have like stuff of value, like know what is useful. Yeah. So that's where the marquee gets his uh, success from, is uh, he acquires a lot of things, and he is one of those people that gets things done, so he can trade his favors yeah. for things of actual... He does things physical. for people, and then they end up owing him favors. Yeah. And he just calls in a like, series of favors all the time. But he hates... Owing someone else a favor. Yes, yes, yes. He never wants he to owe not. anyone else a favor. <laughs> he does not want to owe anyone a favor. Because he doesn't like being under anyone's thumb. He doesn't want to be under anyone's power. Yes. And the Marquis is also like... The Marquis, his, like the same time Richard is going through the typical hero's journey, which we're going to come back and elaborate on that. In the typical hero's journey, the Marquis, he is your classic rogue character with a heart of gold. <laughs> yeah. He is... He, he's he's a classic rogue character, so he's a little bit of everything. He's a little bit of a thief. He's a little bit of a con man. He's a little bit of a trickster. Yep. But since he has the heart of gold, he's doing all this stuff, and he really wishes that he could care less just so he could be kind of utilitarian and just functioning that way. Yeah. But he really cares a lot. Yeah, he does. And he has relationships with people, and he cares about people. So that that's what <laughs> that's what he is. He's yeah. that classic classic character. And he hates it. He wishes he could care less, <laughs> yeah. but he really doesn't. Although in the end, in the end, by the end of the story, I'd say that a lot of people don't change. But I feel like by the end, he and Richard really truly comes to term with come to terms with who they are. Yeah, yeah. He definitely is. Uh, some things happen to him that help him come to terms with who he is. Indeed, and uh, his favors they come into play much more. But you will not know about that. You will have to read about it for yourself. We <laughs> <laughs> looked at a picture of the yeah. from the Never Air show. Look at his hair. His hair is ridiculous. I don't know why they have a picture of David Tennant, Doctor Who, next to him, but that's, that's not who played Richard in the show. That's interesting. Um, yeah, that that caught me off guard. I was trying to find that picture from the that show, which, by the way, was. Only six episodes uh-huh. that were thirty minutes long, so I would say that it was not successful. No, in, in the in the preface or prologue to this edition, and we to just clarify this, so you guys know what edition of the books we're using. Probably should have mentioned this earlier, but whatever. We are using the author's preferred edition yes. of Neverwhere, so it is the most comprehensive one that's come out. It's the one that Neil is the most pleased with. And in the prologue preface to this this edition here, he makes specific reference that he was not a huge fan of how the show came out. <laughs> yes. It didn't exactly come out the way he intended. Yep. And that's part of the reason why he he had this new book. And this newest edition came out in t- 2016. So, yeah. I mean, it's taken him a while to get his true vision realized. But also at the time, this was his first solo novel. Yes. He wasn't really established as a prose writer. He'd mostly done comics. And so a lot of the things, and he also mentions this in the book, things were cut because of the editor's choice. Yep. And that does happen. Yeah, it does. 
even even bigger bigger people that can happen to. Although there's a uh, that one never happens to Stephen <laughs> King though. Yeah, it's, it seems like hands uh, off, and he needs some. Sometimes he needs some heavy editing. He does. He, he needs turn him loose. Some hundreds of pages worth of editing. Probably because he's always sold well, uh, as far as I. Yeah, know. I guess it means it's basically you're successful. So you yeah. I mean, when he hit it, he hit it though. He he hit it when he hit it. He hit it big, and he's just been. People have just been buying ever since. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If it's Stephen King, people will buy it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a little off track, but back to, that, that, back uh, to that photo just caught me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to look it up, it's, uh, I would say just look up the Neverwhere TV show. Yeah. And it's... Uh, IMDb it. Yeah. A lot of pictures will come up of the audiobook that they did with some uh, pretty famous actors and yeah. actress. Um, but <laughs> that's not the one though. I think you'll know when you find it, <laughs> especially picture. based on the description that we've given of the Marquis <laughs> and it, his full name is the Marquis de Carabas. I don't know if, if we've mentioned that at all yet. I uh, don't think so, but and, now we have. Yep. And, and that's it. Interesting. Uh, if you know anything about fairy tales or <clears throat> folklore, and this will also be another Example for you to see something very telling about Neil Gaiman is his wide and diverse knowledge of fairy tales, folklore, and mythology. The Marquis de Carabas, Carabas, I'm not sure exactly how you say that. I say it Carabas in my my mind. But the Marquis de Carabas is from the fairy tale Puss in Boots (laughs) uh, from France. And even in that story, he's not real. The Marquis de Carabas and Puss in Boots is the is the fictional like marquee that the Puss invents for all of his stories and how he use, he tricks people. Oh. So even then he's a he's a a literary device. He's <laughs> not even real there. So the Marquis has chosen this as someone that is not real at all. That is quite interesting. And Definitely Ooh, telling yeah. of him. He he's someone he doesn't want to be pinned down. Yeah, definitely, definitely not. It's definitely not a, a hidden uh, aspect of his personality. No. no. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we've talked about we talked about Richard. Mm-hmm. Talked about Dor. We talked about the Ma- the Marquis. Yes. I think that's basically every major major character besides two. Yes. We haven't two, talked about the two the two antagonists. Yep. And I would say that there is basically no other antagonist. There's these are the main antagonists in yeah. the whole story, and that's of course Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar. Now Croup is actually um, Croup is like a lung disease, I think. Is it? Yeah. It's still pretty common to this day. Yeah, actually, I think it is. Um. These guys are even to that. That will tell you they're not some nice people. Yeah. I mean, one guy's <laughs> named after a, a disease or a sickness. Yeah, that, they're they're not good guys. They've obviously like a lot of people in the story are very old. Yeah, they might be the oldest. Yeah, they might have caused a lot of things in history that are bad. Yeah, they are of definite indeterminate age. They like he, like Jesse said, they have been around for. It seems like all of time causing tragedy, death, and misfortune in their yeah. wake. And basically they build themselves as just professional assassins, I guess, is what they build themselves as. Yeah. They anything anyone that needs to be tracked down, hurt, that's kind of what they're doing. And the reason why they're involved in the story is they are tracking door. Yes. And we don't know their exact motive or who hired them at all. And But they're following her and they're pursuing her. And they at least want to capture her. And that's what we know yes. about them. We know that they are not up to good. And they're not doing anything good. For her. Um, they are obviously a pair. They're always together. They're a team. Yeah, they're a team for sure. They're never separate ever. Nope. Um, I don't think they... Would it seems like they can't function? Yeah, as separate units. Yes, they're a package deal. They're a package deal. You lose one, you gotta lose the other one. Or yeah, you see one, and the other one is around. Um, they are one of them is kind of uh, the 
probably a little more violent, I guess. Which o- one? You think overtly violent? Um, Mr. Vandemar. I think it was Mr. Vandemar. He's, he's the big one. Yeah, the big one. He's kind of like the typical muscle. The muscle. Yeah. Um, he's the big guy who's a little more violent and brash with the way he he's like a big things. strong brute yes he's always eating stuff yeah and he usually eats raw animals that yes. he kills <laughs> squirrels shit. mice rats he eats uh yeah pretty much anything anything he doesn't really care yeah he does Definitely seem to not, like things not, that are like raw like raw flesh yeah, just seems not to be like his favorite basically i'm pretty sure he shoves like a whole bird into his mouth at one yeah. point <laughs> he uh actually yeah there's a point where they're uh they're out and about and um they run he runs into a flock of i think pigeons to catch one and eats it <laughs> yeah he just shoves the whole thing into his mouth feathers yeah. and all he's uh, that's the way he likes it that's how it's what he eats i guess whatever floats your boat um, and then Mr. Crope is... He's, uh, he's the he's, little... He's the cunning. He's the cunning. He's a little sneaky guy. He's, he's more about speed, surprise. Yes. He's the brains. He's the planner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say who you should watch out for more because, like yeah. I said, they're a package deal. Yeah. And like Jesse said, uh, if you see one, it's only a matter of time. The other one is somewhere. Yes. He's somewhere close by. You see by. the other one? The other one... Is probably behind you. Yeah, that's uh, that they like to play that game like that. Yes, they enjoy what they do, especially the uh, violent aspect of it. They, they like hurting it. and killing people. And one thing, like we said, that um, the marquee is described to be like a large predatory cat, <laughs> in the way that he is like he's always thinking, plotting, planning for himself. And that's one thing that you'll also see is uh, Gaiman, he really, he compl- he frequently compares the characters, a lot of the principal characters to animals. Yes. So if we say that the Marquis is, we'll say the Marquis is a panther. Mm-hmm. And he is, it's, made, it's mentioned several times that Mr. Croup is basically a fox. Yes. He's small, he's quick, he's cunning, he has like orange hair. Long orange hair, and he makes he makes the frequent description of Mr. Croup's teeth. He says they look like an accident in a graveyard. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty it's a pretty witty it's a pretty witty uh, line there. I can see why he likes to keep using that one because it's pretty funny. Yes, and the uh, I don't know if one. a fox's teeth look like that, but I don't particularly think so no probably not no <laughs> just his own his own thing it's his little, own part of a fox that he it's a funny little simile <laughs> uh the second the tall one uh is described as a wolf yeah um he's gray and black hair is cut really short Bris- like a bristly yes thickness like a wolf's coat yes uh he's he's a he's a big one yeah he's he's the the, the fox is the smaller, the more... And he's always hungry. He doesn't toy with his prey. He just Yeah, he just goes for it. And it's I think foxes to toy with their prey. I'm not an animal expert. I, I'm pretty sure that they do. Yeah, I think they are... Uh, Which is something that Mr. Croup enjoys more. I think they're a little more cunning with how they catch their prey as well. Yeah. Whereas a wolf kind of travels in the pack and they just attack. And for the most part. I think that... Like we said before, Mr. Croup is the brains. Yes. So, Mr. Vandemar would be the... He is definitely the pack mentality. Yes. He follows his alpha, I guess you would say. Yes. Yeah, those guys are a creepy bunch, I would say. They're the main antagonizers. Oh, yeah. So, that's basically every... That's the, the big... The big characters. Principal characters. Yes. That are there with us the whole time. And I guess the final one we could talk about, who was there for a while, is Hunter. Yeah, oh, yes, yes. Hunter. I like Hunter. Uh, she is first seen by Richard. And yep. he describes her as like a caramel-skinned woman. <laughs> She's like supposed to be exceedingly beautiful. Yes, he's like he describes her pretty much as like the most beautiful woman that he's ever seen. Ever seen. And uh, he thought... 
just Beyonce was hot. Yes. This is like a whole nother level. She's a whole nother level. Yeah. Um, like she, exotic beauty. Exotic beauty. She comes and she is a... He thinks she's a... He th- seems to think she's a hooker. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was his, his words for it. <laughs> Yeah, he thinks he, she's a hooker when they uh, first meet. Obviously, in his mind, he said he thinks that. And for someone who is presumably in his, I would say, what mid to late twenties. Yes, he's considerably naive about certain things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's part or of. Or just that. he's not like very worldly. I guess I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he seems to. He comes from Scotland and. Yeah, like a kind of a r- rural part. Yeah, and this like first going to London is like a big deal for him. Like yes. when he first goes there. Um, At the time of the story, he's been living there for three years, too, but it's taken him a while to get accustomed, and he is now. Yes. Um, she is not a hooker. No, She's definitely not. A, uh, yeah, I guess I could still say it. It's not giving away too much. She's an assassin bodyguard. Uh, yeah, she's just a very, very skilled... Quite literally, she is a hunter. Yes, she's of, a hunter. She enjoys hunting. Of any creature, whether it's... Human, beast. Yes. She enjoys hunting in all its aspects. She is excellent at it as well. The best. Yep. And then, like before we even meet her, there's like legendary tales of yeah. like this this legendary character who's just called Hunter as like the best bodyguard or to use some of the parlance of the show they they say a bravo. Mm-hmm. Which is like an older term for a bodyguard or like a personal uh, yeah. personal guard. <laughs> And yeah, she. Where am I? Just a. I mean, that's. She's very stoic. Yeah, not um, giving off a lot of emotion. Yeah, she doesn't give off a lot of emotion. Guarded. Very guarded. Uh, doesn't talk about her past. No. At all. She just likes to hunt, and she is very widely known to be the best at it. Extremely skilled. Yes. Sometimes. Almost effortlessly skilled. Yeah. From years of practice and honing. And again, could be hundreds of years old. Yeah, could Probably be very, very, very old. Um, she, even when she fights, she is seen as just graceful with the way she does it. Everything she does is graceful. And she it's like a dance. Home. Yeah. And this is another thing. I mean, this is obviously coming from my male perspective, <laughs> but I think that Neil Gaiman is great at writing female characters. Especially like ones that are, he writes strong female characters, and he always he, he can easily write a likable female character. Yes, yeah. And even with Dora, who's uh, not quite. The, she's not your like damsel. Yeah, she's not your damsel. He never she's has. Also, not your. Uh, she's also not like Hunter. No, but she's still interesting. But he doesn't write like those damsel-less characters, and all the things I've read from him, like he always gives his female characters like plenty of agency. Mm-hmm. And I'm reasonably certain that he is, that's kind of like this, his mentality as far as things go. Like he's fairly equality driven. Yeah, that's, that's most likely, what it would, unless he just puts a lot of effort into uh, changing it for books. I think that's just his style of writing because the way he writes, his fiction is adored by both men and women. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying is that that's most likely. It do, it's not like de- divisive in that way at yeah. all. Um. So yeah. that's a, definitely a strength of Neil Gaiman, I would say. Yeah, not many weaknesses. I mean, he has the the diversity in in what he does, and is able to write both kinds of characters and make worlds, make do all sorts of stuff really well. He made kids' books as well as yep. adult-oriented books. He has a bunch. Yes. He won a lot of awards. Oh, yeah. A lot. So... I would say that we have discussed a lot of the principal characters, which is, of course, a story element. Mm-hmm. And we said we were going to touch upon elements of story elements, and now would probably be a good time to talk a little bit about story structure. Okay. <clears throat> so we said that this is the typical hero's journey. So there's multiple different models of a story structure. I'm sure you've heard them all in school. There's the... There's the beginning, middle, end. There's the act one, act two, act three. Like the three-act play structure. Mm-hmm. There is the one that's more of like a triangle. It's a rising action, climax, yeah. falling action. It's all 
different words for essentially the same thing. <laughs> yeah. This is how stories go a lot of the time. This is how we like to hear things. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, you want to outline what the typical hero's journey is? Uh, this book. <laughs> yeah, this book. Like, what uh, are, like, some classic elements? Uh, okay, so classic elements are relatable character. Um, very normal-seeming protagonist. Yeah, normal-seeming protagonist, which he does a, a very, very good job of all, I guess, underplaying. Uh, the character as super, super normal. <clears throat> um, and then... He, the, yeah. the, in the hero's journey, a lot of the time, the, the, the protagonist, the main character, is they're kind of torn away from, their, yeah, old, from their old life. They're forced to separate from it. Like Richard is, by saving Dor, he's immediately drawn to her world. Mm. Literally. Literally. Because once you start taking part in London Below, you kind of cease to exist in London Above. Yes. Which is not too much of a spoiler. I think it's fair to say that. Yeah. It's pretty early on and it's pretty... But you look at other exciting. you look at other things that are like the classic hero's journey. Let's say like, we have Star Wars. Yep. Luke, oh, yeah. he's forced to leave home. He's forced to begin his journey mm-hmm. because his his guardians, Uncle Owen and Aunt Brie, were killed by stormtroopers. Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit is quite literally forced to leave and begin his journey by Gandalf. Yes. He's, makes, he's, he wants him to be, because he's a burglar, that's why he wants him. And then Lord of the Rings as well, Frodo is essentially the same thing happens to him. Yep. Gandalf comes and says, you need to take this ring and have it be destroyed. Yes. It's, so it's, they're always, there's torn away. It's a very extremely common thing to have that hero's journey. You have the... Be the reluctant hero. That's yeah, usually the reluctant hero. Reluctant hero. <clears throat> Which I would say this is... He's sort of, sort of the I, reluctant yeah, I'd hero. I'd say he's reluctant hero. Well, I mean, because he's a... He wants to help, but he doesn't, yeah. want to, he doesn't want a lot of change. Yeah. Another thing is once they're drawn in, it seems that it's their destiny to fulfill and see the quest to the end. Yeah. Which is all sure. those references I just talked about, that is definitely there in all of those. Yep. Um, so dragged into this journey, and uh, he ends up during this journey triumphing in some way and becoming As the hero a, is wont to do. Yes. Uh even in the reluctant one, you gotta have we gotta have the big climax. Yeah, because yeah. the big climax is when the hero realizes for themselves what other people the people have seen in them from the beginning. They have some innate greatness, and they don't know what they're truly capable of until they defeat the great evil. Yes, and then after you have this big climax, you have uh, essentially the fallout of it. Yeah, which is usually the resolution. A, yeah, a resolution, which usually ends up being a change in the main, the character that went through the journey, the journey, um, <clears throat> and, and they know they can't go back to their old life. Yes, they may or may not want to, but they know that they're now kind of forever in changed. They they they've become something more, something yes. greater now. And this definitely, quite literally, happens to him. Mm-hmm. in here uh, he gets forced into that role he does something and he realizes he can't really go back to, to regardless of what he wants to do uh, and ends up in a certain place yeah and this is also like a, a typical hero's journey that it's basically for it's it's all for the best yes yeah it's not like a like the world, the world that the hero is in benefits from their actions. The hero personally benefits from it, and the people around them do as well. Yes. It's a beneficial, yeah. good thing that occurs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the hero's journey. So that's your that's your little structure lesson, <laughs> story structure. And like I like I said before, it, it uh, most stories will fit that model. Yeah. Basically all stories kind of, will fit a model, whatever words you decide to ascribe to it. Especially now, it's very hard to avoid that. It's so ingrained in like our story. Our culture, culture. our minds, yeah. like movies, TV series, books, comics. 
it, you see it all and you take all that in without knowing that they all follow, like a lot of them follow, do follow a very similar structure. Yes. yes. And you don't even realize it a lot of the time. But now you will. And now you will. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's not bad. As this shows, it's like a... It's not bad. Like, I mean, it's like, think of it like a, think of it like a house or something. Yeah. You want to have a firm foundation yeah. to build your house on. You want to have a structure. Exactly. To hang your home in. It's all about what you do with, with the, the house details. and the foundation. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and then... Uh, you want to talk about another story element now? Yeah. So... We can't do all the elements of a story because there's... That would be so long. Yeah. I'd pick apart the whole book and then it would just reveal everything. Yeah. That's definitely what we want to uh, try to avoid. Because one of the points of this is that you should read it and you should want to read it. Yes. Because it is a book that you should read. Clearly by, uh, I guess, us going into so much detail about it. Uh, Definitely a very good book. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So which story element do you want to go into? Go into, I guess we can go into tone. Okay. So, this book, very... It's dark. Yeah, it's Literally like, and figuratively dark. But not to, like, a ridiculous extent. Not like the gritty dark. Yeah, it's not a gritty dark. It's just kind of like, oh, it's some dark stuff going on. Yeah. But it still has a good, a good amount of... Uh, I don't like I don't like saying comic relief, but that's kind of it's definitely injected with humor. Yeah, and that's another element. We can just tack this on with the tone. We can talk about the writing style at the same time. Mm-hmm. The writing style is he, he yeah he makes it fun. Yeah, he is. There's a lot of like witty jokes. He's got that. He's got a classic British humor about him. Yeah, he makes a lot of a lot of witty quips along the way, basically throughout. Yeah, he Pretty leavens much. the he leavens the darkness. I mean, even in uh, some of the dark, dark things that happen, you, there's there's some of that humor in there. There's characters that crack jokes, or yeah. Richard will be so awkward, or even just the the, the crack about uh, his teeth. Yeah, the yeah, that, accident in the graveyard. <laughs> yeah, there's there's even small stuff that kind of really helps. Maybe and I'm, some some things in the world are just so zany you can't help but yeah, laugh. It's kind of it's weird, like the. And Richard is always surprised, like we said, like when, like they'll be like, "Yeah, we're going to Blackfriars to see the Blackfriars," and he'll be like, "There's not actually Blackfriars," <laughs> and they're like, yes, "Like I know." And he's like, oh, "Okay, yeah, uh, that's you're having a you're having a laugh, mate." Yeah, he's definitely uh, slow to catch on to some of the literal things in there, which is pretty much everything. Yep, <laughs> uh, and he 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 even kind of recognizes it himself. He's like. Uh, typical Londoner where he's uh, they're talking about the the gap the stations oh yeah and like they're talking about just the stations and there's like uh, he's like oh there's no this station doesn't exist and they're like I mean, where have you been this whole time <laughs> um it's yeah, tone yeah. dark and it's literally dark I mean they're below ground <laughs> yes. for almost more than it. half the book yeah Probably, I'd say like 80%, yep. 75-80% of the book, they're below ground. And under there, everything is lit by torches. Sometimes there's electricity. Yeah. There's a lot of like fire candlelight though. Yeah. Because it's like very, the trappings of London below are very medieval. Yeah. So, I mean, they still have modern stuff because it's kind of like filtered down. <laughs> and they've kind of pilfered what, and like stolen what they can. Yeah. But it's very medieval yeah other than that very much um yeah that's pretty much the tone it's pretty much the tone and I guess we can wrap it up in the last thing by talking about the point of view of the book yeah uh yeah so the third person uh omniscient yep is pretty pretty much you can Clear. kind of see anywhere. Yeah. The author, the author, obviously Neil Gaiman in this scenario, he can, he can kind of see everything. He can go anywhere. He can tell you what he wants to know. He yeah. can go inside different characters' heads, and he does do that. Yeah. He knows everything. And throughout time. Yeah. Knows everything. He doesn't unbound. have to show everything, but he. He's can, like a godly figure. Yeah. He's just kind of 
telling the story, I suppose. He's presiding over the entire thing. Yes. Because sometimes it'll be like you're over Richard's shoulder, but then it'll jump perspectives mm-hmm. and can you go to a different character. Yeah, it can even go into uh, the present talking from one character's point of view, kind of, and then going into something that happened in the past and giving the whole story about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it can pretty much give you anything, which is what that is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> That's a pretty quick hit right there. Yeah. I don't know if thing. I need to say anything else on that one. Yeah, not really. So as a final wrap-up, I guess we can just say... We can just talk about the the little short story at the end. The yeah. fun little short story. Yep. And then we can just give our general impressions. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the final short story is called How the Marquis Got His Coat Back. Yeah, quite literally. Literally, yes. Um... There is, I guess it's not really spoilery. There's a point in the novel yeah. where he obviously said that he loses his coat. Loses his coat, and the, the one that we said defines him. Yes, and the the story, the short story, really talks about how that coat <laughs> defines him. Yeah. It, it gives his history with the coat, his love of the coat. I mean, he loves that damn coat. Yeah, that coat is like his. It does life. sound pretty awesome, though. It does. I mean, he's saying how many different pockets and hidden pockets, and he There's loses a lot, stuff a lot in of there. Pockets. Yeah. <laughs> It's like you think of a classic classic character with like a certain look that you really think Like if you ever if you ever watch Doctor Who, every every doctor has their own unique mm-hmm. wardrobe piece and it's usually a coat. Everyone yeah. everyone of them has their own unique it's a coat. Defining uh, or the Sherlock coat that Benedict Cumberbatch has. Yeah. It's a defining piece. It's like his thing. Makes the character. Yeah. Um yeah, without really giving away anything else about that, I guess it's a... He gets his coat back. He gets his coat back. It's basically a really cool, deep dive into who I think is the most interesting character in Neverwhere, yeah. the book itself. And you get a little expansion on the world as well. Yep. You get his backstory, too. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, you also get a little bit about his family. A little bit. A little bit. Tiny, tiny sneak peek. A little sneaky sneak. Just enough. <laughs> Just enough. You don't need, like, the whole description, but you, you get a bit. When you're reading the book, definitely don't skip that if you ever thought that you would or should yes. read it. And this is actually a, uh, when he was doing the preferred text, uh, it came out almost around that time, and he yeah. was published in, uh, with um, George R. R. Martin. Yeah, and like a collection. Yes. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting. Revisiting the world that much later and... Years. Over 10. Yeah. 96 to... Yeah, 97. 2014 or 15? Yeah. Yeah. Long time. To be away from that. Over 10 years, over a decade. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a good short story. Definitely a lot. Definitely one of the best things in the book. Because uh, you get the good character and you get a cool expansion on the world. and It's a cool revisiting of the world after the book. Yeah. I think it takes place in the midst of the book's story. It's like a little sidebar. Yeah. Because he goes away for a bit. Yeah, he does go away for a bit. Yeah, that's all about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a point. That's it. Um, so, so, in closing, we'll just say... Uh, I never, before this project, I never read Neverwhere. I've read a bunch of other stuff by Neil Gaiman. I already liked him a whole lot, <laughs> which is why I wanted to start the series about our proposed Neil Gaiman series, and I wanted to start from the beginning. And I figured what better to play, start place to start than his first solo novel, and I loved it. Yes. Um, I am kind of the opposite. I had only ever read his Norse mythology yeah. Before this, um, was definitely interested because obviously seeing like American Gods being a TV show and hearing it was good and knowing Stardust was a movie and mm-hmm. clearly he makes some good stuff that people want to adapt. So yeah, started with his first solo novel uh, and I was very pleased with it. I like, I like it a lot. It's really cool to like be in the world <laughs> yeah. that he's created. Yeah, which is always something that I feel. Like when I read anything that Neil has written, and I think you'll see that as well. 
Yes. When we get into it more. I'm sure. It's always cool to be in that world. Because he just... He doesn't, like... He, in this book, like, he's, there's somewhere he gives you more of the world, but he definitely gives you just enough to have a really good time. Yeah. And he lets you fill in some of it with your imagination, which is a fun a fun part of it. Yeah. It's not... You can't undervalue that. I'm sure he gets... Not that it's bad, and I do like it, and it's very good, but I'm sure he gets even better when, as time goes on with the yeah. rest of his books. I mean, this is in certain ways, certain ways it's a, a young man's book, which is not any kind of a derogatory comment at all. Yeah. I mean, he... Just the fact that... He has the typical hero structure, and it's not pushing any buttons or anything. Yeah. Definitely not bad to start off with yeah. something like that. It's just extremely likable. Yeah. Which is a great way to start. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, overall, we definitely both liked the book quite a bit. Would recommend to anyone. Yes. And we will definitely, uh, at some point, be continuing this series of Neil Gaiman's books. Maybe we'll do it chronologically, maybe not. Depends on how the mood takes us. Yeah, I mean... It's going to be a while before we do Sandman, though. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's so... It's quite long, like... Yeah, and we have a lot of stuff that we want to do too. So it's kind yeah. of finding time to get into each of these series. But Sandman wanted a do. lot of work, and it would take, <laughs> take many a episodes, time. probably like at least five. Yeah, um, that may be saved for last. <laughs> yeah, or farther down <laughs> or the road, at least way further down. Yeah, yeah. So that was our summary review of intro Neverwhere. to Neverwhere and Neil Gaiman intro to Neil Gaiman Neverwhere why you should read slash our first uh, literary, literature topic yes literature discussion more uh, to follow doing do. a book can be definitely more challenging yeah, it's definitely. not visually represented at all <laughs> not at all um, if you guys have any recommendations of how you like this episode any or suggestions for how suggestions, another one could go yes for how or books to read what you would like us to talk about in these literary discussions or any other books or any topics at all then I would definitely advise you to get in contact with us to let us know it's <laughs> the only way that we would know yes instead of keeping it to yourself yeah well I think that's about it yeah till next time yes have a great day Goodbye. <laughs>